We live in a day when Satan is walking about seeking whom he may devour. I don't believe the things that happen in our life are merely happenstance. In, in fact, the Word of God teaches that the things that happen in our life are not merely a matter of happenstance but that there are spiritual forces at work, or might we say this, spiritual persons or personas at work. I thought a little bit this morning as we were sitting in Sunday school, uh, Brother Jeff was teaching about thankfulness, and, you know, it'd go a long way in our lives if we just treat God like He is somebody. And what I mean by that is treat Him like He is a person. The world would have you and I to believe that God is merely an ideal. But God is not merely an ideal. God is a person. He has a personality. When we sin, it offends God. When we are obedient, I believe it blesses the Lord. I heard somebody say one time, well, we can't be a blessing to God. Well, if you in the preaching this morning, you know that's not true because the psalmist exhorted us to bless the Lord. And so I believe God has an opinion about the things in our life, don't you? We might say it this way, we call it God's will. You know what that really is? That's God's opinion about a matter. What does God think about a matter? And uh, no less than the fact that God is a person is this truth, that Satan is also a person. Satan is not merely the embodiment of evil or wickedness, but he is a person or a personality or a persona, however you'd like to describe it, and uh, he most certainly also has a will for your life. I believe our young people need to hear about God's will for their life, but I think they also need to hear that the devil has a will for their life. And Satan is trying to destroy them. It is his will to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's the will of Satan. That's what he wants in your life and mine. And the story of Job, uh, 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 it highlights this. It exemplifies and expresses this truth to us in a very deep and profound and yet very plain and simple way. I would suggest to you that the attack that took place in Job's life was a spiritual attack. In other words, though he had lost his uh, children, though he had lost his goods, though he had lost maybe the support of his wife, if we want to describe it that way, uh, Job's greatest battle was not against the Sabians or against the Chaldeans, but his greatest battle was a spiritual battle. But not only was it a spiritual battle, it was a satanic battle. Satan was seeking to oppress him. Uh, but I'm thankful that, listen now, it was not only a satanic and a spiritual battle, it was a sovereign battle. God had a purpose in it. I, I, I was listening to him again this morning in Sunday school. I got a lot of help from that Sunday school class. And I was listening to him in Sunday school, and there was something that was almost said. As a preacher, you learn to listen for what's almost said. And uh, sometimes you'll hear a preacher preach, and you'll think, well, why didn't he say that? Man, it was right there. It was just almost said. And uh, what was sort of almost said was this, that because God has a purpose in everything, you and I can give thanks in everything. We don't have to understand the purpose in everything, to give thanks in everything. It's enough just to know that God has a purpose in everything. God had a purpose in what was going on in the life of Job. And so when Job comes under attack, he does three things in response to this. And, and can, I say, can I give an endorsement to Job's actions? Job did the right thing. But not only am I going to give an endorsement to this, listen to what God 
said about this. In verse number 3 of chapter 2, the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil, and still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. Listen to how God describes it in verse number 10, or how, how Job describes his actions. It says, But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? And the Lord said, And all this did not Job sin with his lips. So Job evidently handled this satanic attack in the right manner. And we see the three things that he did. Two weeks ago we preached on part number one, and that Job found the wisdom of worship in the midst of his attack. Let me tell you something. The best thing you can do when you come under attack, first and foremost, is fall on your face and settle in your heart that God's good and the Lord may give or the Lord may take away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord is still good. If you don't get that grounded, the devil's going to lead you around by your nose for weeks and months and years trying to get you convinced that God has not been good to you or that God has not been merciful to you. Go ahead and nail it down. When, When everything falls to pieces, when you get that phone call or when you get that letter in the mail or when you get the bad news and you don't know what to do and everything is falling to pieces, go ahead and stop right there and remind yourself that God is good in all things. He found the wisdom of worship. Last week we talked a little bit about how he found the purpose of the posture. We see in verse number 8 of this passage that he took him a potsherd to scrape himself withal. And I don't have time to re-preach it, but suffice it to say that Job took the broken pieces of his circumstances and he used them to purify his own body. Let me say that it's the will of God that when we do come into calamity and trial that we stop for a moment and look at our lives and consider. Uh, I heard a preacher say one time that all of the trials in life are either for uh, purification or perfection. I'd say to you that they can be for both. When God is trying to purify us, He's trying to perfect us. He is trying to purge some things out of our life. And so Job takes this potsherd, a symbol of his brokenness, and begins to cleanse his body. But tonight, let's read these first eight verses again. And I want to talk to you a little bit about the assurance of the ashes. Job did three things. Let's look at the third this evening. It says in verse number 1, Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said unto Satan, From whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil, and still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause? And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. But put forth thine hand now, and touch his bone and his flesh, And he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. So went Satan forth from the presence of the Lord, and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. Verse 8 says, And he took him a potsherd to scrape himself withal, and he sat down among the ashes. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, again we praise you and thank you for this privilege to be in your house this evening. Lord, I pray that you'd for these next few moments bless the preaching of your word to the help and hearts of your people. 
And Lord, may we all be drawn closer to you through your word and through the leading of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we love you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if the Lord will help me tonight, I want to be brief, and I want to give you three thoughts and show you that Job, in the midst of all that he was going through, found a place to sit down, and that place was the ash heap, and there, I believe, he could find assurance and encouragement for what he was going through. Now, when we think about Job's actions, they may seem odd and peculiar to you and I, but it wasn't odd and peculiar in this day. The book of Genesis chapter 18, in fact, presents to us the very first time that the word ashes is used in the Word of God. And uh, Abraham is speaking, and he's speaking to the Lord. And he says down in uh, verse number 27, he says, And Abraham answered and said, Behold now, I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. To the mind of the ancient, to go to the ashes was to go back to the very thing and the very place and the very weakness and the very frailty of who and what they were. You'll find that when Jonah uh, went and preached God's message to that great city of Nineveh, that the king uh, rent his mantle and he covered himself in sackcloth and ashes. What was Job doing when he went back to the ash heap? Well, I want to say, number one, that Job, when he got in the midst of the attack, when Satan went out against his life and moved God to destroy him without cause, the first thing that Job did uh, when he got to the ash heap was he repented in a familiar way. Now, I don't have to convince you of that. I'll let Job convince you of that. Down in chapter number 42, when it gets down to the end of the chapter, now you say, what was Job doing in that ash heap? Why did he go there? Well, Job said this in verse number 6 of that chapter. He said, wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. So evidently, in Job's mind, when he went back to the ash heap and he sat down and covered himself in ashes, this was his way of showing God the contrition of his heart and the willingness to turn any sin that might be there over unto the Lord and to give it up and to forsake it. Let me say this, and I already sort of touched on it as we gave an introduction, uh, that I believe it's wise any time that the bottom falls out and the sky begins to fall to take inventory of our lives. That's not to say that everything that happens in your life, it happens because you've sinned. That's not to say that every bad thing that takes place, it's because you've got some secret hidden sin of the heart and you're playing aching with God. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, God said this about Job, said that, uh, that, uh, or said this about Job to Satan, said that you've moved him against me with what? Without cause. God was not persecuting Job so that he might get some kind of sin out of his life. But you've got to remember that you and I, we're privy to read that first couple chapters of Job. But Job, and I don't know when he found out, if he found out, but Job sure didn't know nothing about it in the first two chapters. Job doesn't know what's going on. He spends the next 40 chapters describing how in the dark he is and how little he understands about what's going on in his life. So Job doesn't know about that. All that Job knows is that in one moment everything is falling into pieces. And so what does he do? The first thing he asks himself is this, could there be any sin in my life? Now you say, preacher, that's dangerous. I mean, you're going to make people feel bad. Listen to me. I, I, I believe that I'd rather make you feel bad and have you examine your life than make you feel good and never take a look and take inventory at the way that you're living. 
I know, and we spend so much time trying to convince people uh, that that uh, calamity is not always the cause of sin in their life, that I think sometimes we neglect to tell people that sometimes calamity is caused by sin in your life. I mean, I know, I'm aware that uh, that sickness and trial is not necessarily caused by sin. I'm aware uh, that wealth and prosperity is not necessarily brought on by godliness. But let me say this, I still believe that God has a way of getting a hold of His children. I still believe that God can call your name and ring your bell when He needs to. And I know we're going to uh, take the Lord's Supper here in a little while. You know the exhortation that God gave to the church at Corinth. He said that when you take of it unworthily, He says, for this cause, uh, some are sick and weakly among you and some sleep. That's God's way of saying some die. In other words, because of sin in their life, God had to persecute or purify them and chasten them in a hard way. I know it's not always because of sin, but Job couldn't hear the conversation in heaven. Do you know the first thing he does? He stops and he thinks to himself, maybe I better take a look at my life and see if there's anything that I need to take care of. It's a good sign that we're not right with God when we're so entrenched in our own righteousness that we can't admit what we even are. You know what Job was doing when he went to them ashes? That was a confession of what he was. I mean, Abraham, first time it's ever used in your Bible, Abraham said, I'm speaking to the Lord, and I'm nothing but dust and ashes. We know that Adam was formed out of the dust of the ground. But I'll let you know this, I think Job did too. And so it was always connected in the mind of those in ancient days that that soil that they tilled in, that those ashes that were left over from the fire, that that was the material that they had come from. And I think it's sort of uh, part of the reason they did it is they were admitting that that's what they really were. Let me tell you something. Something's wrong in your life when you think you're too good to admit that you're just a sinner saved by grace and that you have the capacity to sin and to do wrong just like everybody else. I don't care who you are. There's none of us. None of us us is sanctified to the point that we're beyond sin. There'll come a day we will be. One of these days this vile body will be changed like unto His glorious body. But as long as you live in this world, you're you're not just prone to sin, you're apt to sin. I mean, you're not just susceptible, it's probable. And Job is acknowledging the weakness and frailty of what he is made of. And so he goes and he sits down in the ash heap. I think it'd do you and me good uh, whether things right now... I'm talking about right now. I don't mean maybe someday. I don't mean if you get a funny feeling up and down your spine. I think right now it'd do me and you some good if we just take some inventory of our lives. You say, I don't need to, preacher. Then you might be the very one that does need to. What are you scared of doing? Taking a moment and asking God, is there anything in my life that you need to address and to deal with? You say, but preacher, I would never... Whoa, wait a minute now. You're but dust and ashes. Just like me and just like Job. Preacher, I'm a good person. There's none good. No, not one. (laughs) I don't care who you are. We all sin. What are you scared of in asking God what it could be in His life? could be that you're scared, just like sometimes my flesh is scared of this too. could be you're scared because you know there's something there and you know what God's going to put His finger on. Job goes to the ash heap. It's his way of repenting. I don't even know if Job even knew anything to repent of. 
But he goes and he lays down. I mean, evidently there was nothing secret and hidden because God says, I'm doing this without cause. And God says that in all this, Job did not sin. Now, I know Job wasn't a perfect man, but I do believe that Job lived as close to God and right with God as he could. I don't know what Job repented of. I don't know what he asked God's forgiveness of. It could be he didn't even ask uh, forgiveness of anything. He just prayed and asked God to show him if there was anything that needed to be gotten out of his life. That's a good exercise for all of us. That's what we might call a control. <laughs> you know what I mean? You ever see them do these experiments and we'll do one of them which they call a control? That's to set a baseline. Amen? I like this, so I'm going to preach it. Stay with me. You've seen them do the lie detector test, haven't you? And the first thing they'll ask you is something like your name, something that they, they'll know whether you're lying or not. And you know what they do? They set that as a base from which to work. You know what they're saying? They're saying, let's roll everything back to zero. Let's clear everything away. Let's set everything back. Let's get a baseline for what's right and what's true. I think some of us need to get back to the basics and get a baseline again. Some of us, it's been so long since we've got on our knees and confessed our sin before an almighty God. There's so many things laid up that we can't remember, that we could never remember. We just need to get on our face in the ashes and get a baseline. Ask God's forgiveness. Have Him set some things back to normal. You say, but preacher, I don't even know. Hey, I understand. I believe we sin specifically. We need to confess specifically. But if you're like me, you might just be absent-minded enough that there's a few things that don't come to your mind. So we might pray like David and ask God to search me and to try me and to know me and to see if there be any wicked or unclean way within me and ask God to cleanse us of it. I think when Job did this that he... He repented in a familiar way. But I think there's more at work here. I want you to notice that not only he repented in a familiar way, but what, when we speak of ashes, are we really speaking of? Uh, now, where does somebody, we're going to do this, I hope this works. You know, sometimes when you ask questions, you're asking the, the wrong question, they give you the wrong answer. But I hope I'm, I'll ask this right. Where do ashes come from? Don't say Mama Coles and Daddy Coles either. Where do ashes come from? Somebody help me now. From fire. See, the ashes are what we might call evidence that fire has been kindled. wonder where Job's ashes came from. Well, there could be a lot of places, I suppose. I mean, the ancients at that time, they burned fires for, for a lot of reasons. But I sort of have an idea of maybe where those ashes came from. Using the Bible as its own commentary... Look back what it says in verse number 5 of the first chapter. It says this, And it was so, when the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent sanctified them, and rose up early in the morning, and offered burnt sacrifices, according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job, listen now, continually. I think the reason Job had ashes at hand was because Job had been giving sacrifices for his children. And when he goes back to those ashes, he's going back to the evidence, listen now, that the sacrifice has been given and accepted. So, preacher, what do I do when I come under attack? Well, I think one of the best things you can do first off is to repent in a familiar way. And make sure that repentance don't become too unfamiliar for you. But after you've repented, after you've asked God's forgiveness, say, preacher, I'm in the midst of this storm. I know that I'm right with God. I know that I'm where I need to be with God. Preacher, what is it that I can do to help me through this storm? I'd say this. Learn to return 
to a faithful witness that the work has been done and the sacrifice has been given. See, when Job came and sat down in those ashes, I'm sure he thought back to every time that he kindled fire on that altar. I'm sure he thought back to the fact that his relationship with God had been real. I'm sure he thought back to the fact that the sacrifice was given and that God from heaven had heard, and that and that only had been the hope that he had. You say, preacher, what do I do when everything goes wrong? You go back to the evidence that the sacrifice is being given, that God has heard from heaven, and that you are accepted in the Beloved. In other words, don't ever forget that you're saved. Don't ever forget that you're saved. You see, those ashes, they may have not looked like much to anybody else. Somebody walking up and down the road, they may have looked at those ashes and thought, look at that mess, somebody ought to clean that up. Very likely, and I know that Job didn't live during the time of the Levitical law, and I know even if he had, that, that Job was not a Jew. Very likely, he, he was of, uh, of some Eastern or Semitic uh, uh, nationality, but I understand he would not have been bound under the law. Uh, but at that time, uh, it was very common that when a sacrifice be given, they'd then take them ashes, much like you and, uh, you and uh, your mom and daddy did when they were growing up. Uh, they'd have a certain place outside of the house or maybe out in the field or somewhere else that they could take and dump those ashes, and that was the common place for them. Somebody walking by, they may have looked at those ashes. They may have not meant much to them. They may have said, man, somebody needs to get out here and clean up that mess. But every time that Job walked by him, he was reminded that he had communed with a holy God. He was reminded that an animal had been slain. He was reminded that the blood had been spilled. He was reminded that a life had been taken. He was reminded that God had heard from heaven. And that his relationship was based upon that. Let me tell you something. Things may get rough, but things being easy isn't what made you a Christian in the first place. I mean, uh, you may lose every penny that you've got tomorrow, but you were not redeemed with corruptible things of silver and gold in the first place. You may lose somebody that you love tomorrow, but let me tell you something. They want your Savior. Christ is your Savior. And I don't know what may happen tomorrow, but I know this that there's evidence of a relationship readily present. That was evidence to Job that he had a relationship with God. Let me tell you something. The devil, he's a rascal, man. I mean, I, the, there, I, I don't ever advocate you telling anybody that you hate him, but you go ahead and tell the devil you hate him. I don't think that makes God mad. You know this, that when the Antichrist comes, don't you listen carefully, when the Antichrist comes... He will be so persuasive, so persuasive that he would deceive even the elect, the Bible says, even the Jews, convince them that he is the Messiah. I kind of believe that if the Antichrist is that persuasive, that if the son of perdition and the son of Satan is, is that, that persuasive, I kind of think that the devil maybe has some opportunities and some skills to make us doubt what God has done in our lives and is doing in our lives. I'm not here to try to give you comfort. If you're lost without Christ, I'm not here to give you uh, comfort to stay in your lost condition. And let me say this, that if you're here lost without Christ, the Word of God can't give you comfort to stay in your lost condition. The only comfort it can give you is to come to Calvary and to accept the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm aware of this. I'm aware that those, listen that are unsaved, Satan does not benefit by making them aware of their unsaved condition. 
Let me say that again. I'm not sure if you really got that. Folks that are lost, Satan is not benefited by convincing lost people they're lost. I know the devil, and you know him too, very likely, if you've walked this earth as a Christian for any amount of time. The old line has probably slid up beside you at some point, and trials come and things begin to fall to pieces. He comes up and he says, you know the reason that's happening is because you never was saved in the first place. What do I do about that, preacher? Don't you imagine that Job maybe sat and thought to himself, maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe God doesn't care about me. If God cared about me, why would He let the Chaldeans fall on my livestock? Why would He let the Sabians fall on my livestock? I, I mean, if God really loved me, why would He send fire out of heaven to consume some of my, my goods? If God really loved me, why would He send a wind out of heaven uh, to knock down the house on my kids? I mean, if God really loved me, uh, God did not, not only allow some of those things, God caused some of those things. Why would God do that if He loves me? The devil come up beside you and say, yeah, it's because he doesn't love you. And you, you know that he's just cunning enough to make you believe it if you're not careful. What do I do, preacher? Well, go sit down in the ash heap and look at the evidence of the relationship you have with God. It's not about whether you feel good or not. Job didn't feel good at this moment. Feeling good isn't what saved you in the first place. Yeah, listen, it ain't about your good works. Your good works didn't save you in the first place. How are we redeemed? But with the uh, precious blood of Christ, as the Lamb without spot and without blemish, we're born again not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. I'm saying this, get back to what matters when it comes to your relationship. I'm saved not because I'm a good person. I'm saved not because I'm a preacher. I've got a relationship with God not because I'm a good person and not because God picked me for His baseball team like some of these Calvinists would have us believe. I'm saved for this reason and this reason alone because I as a sinner came to Calvary and any that come unto me, Christ said, I will in no wise cast out. I placed my faith in the finished work of Christ on Calvary. And He forgave me. I'd say that when he did this, he, he repented in a familiar way. I'd say when he did this, uh, that he returned uh, to a faithful witness. But I would say this, and I'm done, that when he came to this ash heap, he rested in a finished work. You know, sometimes it feels like his life is just shifting and changing at all times. Sometimes it feels like in this life that, that nothing is ever static, Nothing is ever sure. Nothing is ever steadfast. Like there's nothing we can grip our anchor to. But yet we find Job. He goes to the place that never changes. Why? Because the work had already been done and finished there. There's a lot of things you can burn, but you can't burn ashes. The fire had kindled on Job's life, don't you think so? The fire had kindled on Job's life. Satan had moved against him. God had moved against him. You wouldn't think that Job had a friend in the world, his own wife. And by the way, and we, we talked a little bit about it in Sunday school, when, when she did that, I do believe that Job lost her support, but I don't believe Job lost her love. I believe that when Job's wife said, Why retainest thou thine integrity? Curse God and die. I don't believe she was saying that in contempt or in mockery. I believe she was saying that in mercy. Because she believed if Job had, he would have died. Let me say this, I believe she's right. 
The great overarching lesson in Job's life and the great purpose of it was what? To show us uh, how and why the godly suffer and that God never forsakes them. If Job had given God cause to move against him, the grand purpose of his life would have been nullified. God doesn't enjoy seeing his children suffer. Very likely God would have took Job out of this world if that had taken place. And so everything has fallen to pieces. The fire has come against Job's life. But he goes to a place where the fire cannot kindle because the fire has already been. (laughs) What do I do, preacher? What do I do? Let me tell you something, friend. There ain't nothing you can do. Because you can't add to the work of Christ on Calvary. Any strength that you've got comes from Him. Any hope that you've got comes from Him. What do you think Paul meant when he said that all these things, I count them but dung, that I may win Christ? He was saying this, man, there's nothing I can do and nothing I can add to the work of Christ on Calvary. I've told this story before, but I'll share it with you once more and then I'll close. The story is told of a raging prairie fire that was going across the Midwest. And as it was traveling through, a farmer and his family had heard the news that the fire was coming. Bewildered, they did not know what to do. Then all of a sudden, it dawned on the man in a moment. And he ran out before the fire ever reached where they were. And he took a torch and he struck a fire in a wheat field. And as he did this, he burned a large perimeter, burned everything flat. The fire went out, and he went, and as they saw the wall of flames approaching, he grabbed his family and he huddled them together upon that scorched and burnt earth. And when he did, the fire passed all around them, and they were saved. He told his family, they said, how did you know that would happen? He said this, where the fire's already burnt, the fire can't burn again. I'll tell you something, there may be some things you lose, but there are some things you can't lose. I don't know what's going to happen to you tomorrow. I preached a little on it this morning. I'll go ahead and preach on it tonight. You may lose every penny in your bank account. You may lose everybody that you love. You say, what do I do, preacher, when I'm losing everything? Run back to the one thing you can't lose and take comfort in that. I don't know what may happen to you tomorrow, but I know if you're saved today, you'll be saved tomorrow. I don't know what may happen to you tomorrow, but I know if you're saved today, you'll be saved tomorrow we got folks going into surgery tomorrow. we got folks going into surgery over the next few weeks. And, you know, we always take for granted in these days that we live in that folks are always going to make it through. Just because the way medical science is, and we just always assume folks are always going to make it through. we got folks going into surgery that there is a chance they couldn't make it through. You're facing things like that. I, 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 I may have to sit and look in the eyes of a spouse and give them comfort. Preacher, how do you do such a thing? You just remind them, though they may lose everything, there's at least one thing that they can never lose, and it is that which is the most important. He went to the ashes because that was one place the fire couldn't touch. It had already kindled. It had already burnt out. It had already... The fire had been satisfied. The sacrifice had been given. The judgment had been passed. And there he found safety. Let me tell you something. You run back to the place where the judgment has been given and find comfort in what God has done for you. It's there that you'll find a strong hope and a strong consolation. It's there you'll find comfort for what you're going through or what you're about to go through. It's there that we can find the peace that we need 
when we're under attack. With our heads bowed, with our eyes closed, as the musician comes to the piano, the altar's open this evening. If God has spoken to your heart, why don't you come? Maybe you're part of that first crowd that we talked about that need to repent in a familiar way. Say, preacher, I'm going through a trial. I don't even know what's wrong in my life. Go ahead and make your way down and ask God to show you if something's wrong. Preacher, I don't understand what's going on in my life. Come down and seek the one, the only one that could understand what's going on in your life. As she begins to play, the altar's open. Some have already come. Who else would come? How long has it been since you fell on your face in the ash heap and asked God to search your life? How long has it been? I'm not asking you if you're feeling something right now. I'm asking you a question. How long has it been? How long has it been since you fell on your face before God and asked Him to look at your life and forgive you if you've sinned and to show it to you where you've sinned, where you've done wrong? How long has it been? How long has it been since you've made a trip to an altar?